Hey guys, it's Morgan, producer here at Decidedly. Before we get into today's episode, just a quick heads up. Due to a technical glitch, Sanger and Sean's audio quality isn't up to our usual standards on this one, but I promise you don't want to miss it. Our guest, Bo Eason, absolutely killed it and his audio is crystal clear. So we ask for your understanding as we power through this small audio challenge and we will be back to normal next week. Now, let's get into the episode. Have you ever seen the vegan protesters outside of a restaurant? I've seen videos of the vegan protesters. You've never though. seen them. I've though. never seen them live. No, you know what they do? No. They will go outside of like a, you know, steak restaurant and they'll have a, a big, big screen TV that's like hanging around their neck. Like they're just holding this big screen TV. Okay. And the TV is playing a constant loop of like animals getting slaughtered. Okay. And they'll just stand right in front of the, the people who are eating on the patio. And that's their whole protest. <laughs> what kind of, what goes through somebody's mind that they want to be that annoying to some other person who's just trying or to... Or they them. think it's murder. That's what they think. It's not. Well, it's just that's the what, natural that thing. I mean, you, you should obviously take care of the animals and treat them kindly, but I think we're built to eat meat. Yeah, I'm just saying that's not how they see it. No, I, yeah, I get it. They see they are passionately disagreeing with you. Okay, and uh, but the funny part about seeing them is that nobody does anything different. I would think the type of people that are going to go out to a steakhouse or something and eat eat steak uh, are going to just revel in the fact that they're annoying somebody like that. Yeah, it's kind of like an added bonus, I yeah. guess. It's a perk. Yeah, it's a perk. I don't even have to pay. And I get to be the villain of someone else's night. That's great. I got that for free with my steak. Yeah, I was, the first time I ever saw that, I was in Santa Barbara. It was like a, outside of, you know, a little, not even like a big fancy restaurant, just a regular, you know, dining establishment. And they, they had a chicken video. It was people, it was, you know, and it looked, I mean, I mean it looked bad. It wasn't just yeah. normal. Yeah. Chicken meat harvesting. Right. It was like, you know, they show you the worst looking chicken. Right. The, everything about it. It was gross. Yeah. It wouldn't have disrupted my meal. No. By any means. But I feel like those, those, that happens on the coasts. That happens in New York. That happens in California. That would explain why I haven't seen I have never no. in Texas been out on the town and seen someone holding the big TV with the, you know, PETA sponsorship. No, because the, they could just point across the street. They go, "Hey, you know, right over there, they're killing the beef." Yeah, you can go to the source. Actually, yeah, you don't have to go there. You don't even have to. Or you have some more job bother. I don't know why vegan protesters that accent. I don't think really not. I don't think vegan protesters ever talk like that. It's not on par. No. But yeah, the last time I saw that, and I think the only time I ever saw that was in Santa Barbara. And the last time I was in Santa Barbara, I met our guest today, Bo Eason. Bo was unrecruited out of high school, walked onto the football team at UC Davis. Four years later, he started his career in the NFL as a top pick for the Houston Oilers. During his football career, Bo competed beside and against some of the greatest players of his generation. After his football career ended, 
He branched out into acting and wrote a one-man play called Runt of the Litter that went to Broadway. Now he's a speaker and leadership coach. He trains some of the most successful people in the world, athletes, artists, entrepreneurs, and C-suite execs on how to communicate for maximum impact and success. His book, There's No Plan B for Your A-Game, is a national bestseller. We talked with Bo about the importance of physical and emotional grounding to improve your performance, the value of friendly competition, how we rise or fall to the level of our environments we choose, using the L10 rule for measuring progress, how the best leaders are captains, not superstars, outbehaving, not necessarily outperforming your competitors, and getting good at failure and recognizing it as an integral part of success. Stick around. Bo is a terrific storyteller. He's an entertaining character. I've personally learned a ton from him. I know you will too. My name's Sanger Smith. I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Hey, Bo, how's it going? Hey, hey guys. Good. Hey. How are you? I'm doing great. It's the three of us here. We've got an NFL, former NFL player, a Broadway actor, and an award-winning author. Between the three of us? Between the three of us. Well, I think there's pro- you know, several years of NFL experience between yeah. the three of us. It's just Bo has all <laughs> a good resume. That's right. That is a great <laughs> resume between us three. Between the good. Yeah. <laughs> now, where did you grow up, Bo? You, you grew up in California? Yeah, I grew up in a small town. Everybody, when when everyone thinks California, they think like surfing and beach. I grew up in a, a town called Walnut Grove, which is 725 yeah. people. So yeah. it's 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 up on the Sacramento Delta. It's right on the water. It's all farm community. So it's much different than most of California. So a uh, very small town upbringing. Yeah, I, I actually have been there. I, I did some uh, some business coaching years ago, and we had an office there that I went to several t- several times. Surprisingly enough, and uh, so that's friend- town. Yeah, yeah, and it was uh, so. A friend of mine has a, has a financial advisory business there. Look at that. Yeah. So something again. Wow. Small world. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you, Bill, because we talk with a very wide range of guess you know we'll, we'll talk with a birthing expert and then uh you know entrepreneur who's made a massive company but i don't uh, all the time get to talk to people who've had a huge impact on my life and following the work that you did going to your personal story power workshop man it made a huge impact on me as a person but my business also and i'm so excited to be able to talk with you about it and hopefully people can learn you know, a glimpse, a glimpse of what I was able to learn from you. So I came in to your office one time and Sanger was standing with no shoes and socks on <laughs> and he was standing on a rock. And, and I said, what, what is going on? What are you doing? <laughs> and he had just come back, I, I think, so a month or so earlier. So. Yeah. yeah, break down the rock, please, yeah. because he still thinks I'm crazy. Well, no, I, I thought you were full of garbage because it, it's like, you know, what are you doing? You're standing on a rock. Are you right? Everyone does. Uh, Sanger, I appreciate you doing that. Way to go. That's called the Sacred Six. And it start the first, the, the, the number one thing in Sacred Six is you, you, you ground your feet. You ground them to the surface that you're on. And most 
people just obviously don't do this. But if you go around, like if you go to the greatest ballerina in the world, if you go to the greatest athlete in the world, if you go to the best musician, stage performer, anything that has to do with performance, they have to get grounded to the surface they're on because the safer they feel on the surface, the more the body can come out and play. And I, and it, it sounds crazy, right? And it is. It is. When I ask people to do this, especially business people, especially financial advisors, they're like, are you crazy? I'm not doing that. And a lot of times when I'm working with financial advisors, I'll have them do it. They'll give me the same feedback. They'll take it back to their office. And they're the boss, right, of the office. And then the other people who are, you know, the other advisors in the office, they walk by the boss's office and they notice that the boss is in there with no shoes on, standing on a rock, and they think the boss's loss is mine, right? And then they see the business start to grow, and then everybody's in there standing on the rock. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of the the shoes that I had. This was oh, this had to have been probably ten years ago. I was running marathons in these uh, the Vibrams, you know, the toe shoes that were real popular for a, for a while. And you're right. There's a completely different feeling. I would hike in these. I would run in these, uh, and you just felt grounded to the surface. And I started reading about it, and there is you know, not just the physicality of, but there's an energy in the in the earth. And this sounds hippy dippy. You're gonna make it really fun. does. You're, you're gonna make. I'm fun. all about it though. Um, but but you you get this energy in connecting to the to the earth when you can feel it when you can walk. And so I would just love these. Unfortunately, I, I can't run long distances a minute anymore. It t turns out they're horrible for you to run marathons in, but good for you to ground the earth in. And I think there's a lot of wisdom around that, Bo, when you talk about getting grounded. You know, we talk a lot about decision making, getting back to the grounding of it. What is the core basis you're making decisions on? And I think that is super important on the platform. Yeah, I I agree. And Sangra, I know you you came to the three day event, so you probably, I'm guessing you met Jean Louis, right? Jean Louis Rodriguez, yes. the movie yes. coach. So this guy, you know, if you watched the Academy Awards a couple of weeks ago, you see him get acknowledged a couple of times on that on there. He's a he's a movement coach. But what's so crazy about it, you guys, is is Every time there's an amazing performance that wins awards and we all hear about them and know about them, whether it's Leonardo DiCaprio or, or, or Margot Robbie or this guy who just won the Academy Award a few weeks ago, they always acknowledge uh, the movement coach the singer and I work with, right? So there's something to it. Performers know, just like, just like you were talking about, Sean, performers know they need all the safety they can possibly have to let it hang out up there. And so they need to be grounded. And it's, I just have found it so powerful for me coming from an athletic world into the, you know, the stage world. It really helped me cross over into that world and to be able to be as kind of fearless as I was in the NFL. Um, it, it crossed over so I could do that same kind of fearlessness on the stage. Because, you know, when I first got on the stage, I was a little bit apprehensive, like I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to hurt anybody or I didn't want to offend anybody. But I soon learned that I could have that same kind of aggressive 
behavior that I had on the field, uh, on a stage. And it just gave me this permission and this freedom. Anyway, I know it does sound woo-woo at times, but here's my motto. I mean, if it works, I'm doing it. I don't care if I have to put my foot on a rock. If it works, I'm doing it. And most people just are too embarrassed to do it. You know, yeah. and so that, that's kind of it. You know, do it in the privacy of your home. Do it in the, do it in the corner of your office with the blinds down. <laughs> that rock, by the way, is still in my, uh, it's on the floor of my bathroom. So every morning I have to address it before I go on with my day. And I mean, most people don't, you know, who come to my house and go to my bathroom, but occasionally, you know, without fail every time, what the hell are you doing with this rock, man? And I tell them, and they look at me like I'm crazy, but I know. I'm not crazy. I can look at people who are more successful than me, than me, and say, "Hey, it works for them." Who am I to call it crazy? You know, by the if 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 Jean Marie says you got to do cartwheels to warm up, I go, "I'm doing cartwheels, I guess." You know. So, so I'm gonna I want to get to the Broadway movement and all the decisions you had to make there. I want to back up though and take me through the the journey from you know you grew up one brother, one brother. Yeah. Take me through that journey of the competitiveness that must have been in that household that took you through playing football in high school on to, on to college and the pros. Yeah, yeah. I grew up, you know, my brother is a year older than me, and then we're the two youngest. So I'm the youngest of six. Of six. We have four older sisters who were all athletes, so we got our butt kicked by girls growing up the whole time, right? So we got very competitive. We learned how to compete. You know, and 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 my sisters were good athletes. So my brother's about a year, you know, a year older than me, a year older in school, and and you know, he was always better than me, he was always bigger than me. So I just tried to compete and keep up with him. And as it turns out, that took me all the way to the NFL, right? I just was hanging on to his shirt, you know, his shirt tail and just like pounding the whole time. And so it, you know, it got us both careers in the NFL, which was, you know, was very cool. Um, we are a competitive family for sure. Um, we didn't, we went to high school together. We played together. We didn't get any scholarship offers to any colleges. And we both walked on. Like my brother went to a junior college in Sacramento. I went to UC Davis, which is a division two school in, in California that, you know, they don't give scholarships there. So I walked on there and cut to four years later, my brother became a first round pick quarterback of the new England Patriots took them to their first Super Bowl, And then I became a second round pick to the Houston Oilers. And that's, that's how it all kind of happened. Um, so I always talk to kids these days, like my son, he wants to be a pro athlete and, and, he'll see other kids around him get more attention or more notoriety or more scholarship offers. And I always tell him, I go, look, that's, it's never the, it's rarely the superstar in high school. That is the NFL player. It, you know, it is, it's rarely the superstar in high school and college that is in the pros. It's, it's all, often the opposite because those people you know, they learn to take shots, you know, like they turn, they learn to get their butt kicked and superstars for the most part, they, they like winning and they don't like anyone touching them. Right. So as soon as somebody touches them, they start crying and then they quit. And so that's why the, the mutts 
always make it all the way. And that's why you always hear the same story over and over again about, wow, how did Michael Jordan get caught cut from his high school basketball team twice? How did Tom Brady uh, have six, seven quarterbacks drafted in front of him? How did that happen? You know, and yet those are the guys who go all the way. Yeah, and sharing that mindset with a brother, I can only imagine that amplifying it, you know, to a, a, an amazing degree. We hear so much about brothers making it to professional sports together, right? Whether it's the Jones brothers, who the Morris brothers in the NBA, the Stahl brothers in the NHL, there's, there's always, it seems like there's always a good crop of brothers that are in the league together. And some people might dismiss that and go, well, well, yeah, of course. I mean, if you got the genetics to make it, everybody in the family is going to make it. It's easy. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I got gifted, right? It kind of like dismisses, they'll kind of use that to dismiss the achievement, right? And say, oh, yeah, well, those people who make it to the NBA, to the MLB, to the this, to that, and to the, the, highest, the highest level of insert field here are there because of talent, and that talent was God-given and inherited, and they didn't have to work for it. And it's like, man, the fact that these brothers are making it seems like seems to tell me the opposite. It's like you grew up and you had this mindset that carried each other. Because how could you have that mindset alone? You're not gonna be you're not gonna be good brothers for very long. Oh yeah. No, no doubt about it. And you know, there's always a there's typically a little brother and a big brother, and those are two different makeups, right? Like the big brother is usually, you know, bigger, better. The younger one's more scrappy. So they really feed off each other. One tries really hard, is is all about you know effort and determination. The other one's more stoic and more in a in a captaincy mode, like the captain of the ship, and just kind of leading the way. That's that's how my brother and I were able to do it. And you know, I mean, it just really works that way. And and it, there's something special also about being really close in age, where you're actually on the same team, you know, and get. Like I remember in in high school, like my brother playing quarterback and throwing me passes and and winning games. And it was like, it was so easy. It, was, it wasn't that it was easy. It was familiar. Because mm, you had that chemistry. Day, yeah. Every day in the backyard, he would throw the ball. I would catch the ball. And that's what we did for, for years in high school together. So uh, we went to different colleges, obviously. And then we got drafted by different pro teams. So we never got to play with each other again. Uh, actually, until now, like, so now I have a 16-year-old son who wants to be a, an NFL quarterback. And my brother, being a former NFL quarterback, uh, trains him, right? So this, just this morning, you guys, just a few hours ago, before my son went to school, we're out on the field. So my brother lives in Texas, so he's on FaceTime. We've got a tripod set up. My brother's coaching him through through the lens. My son's throwing the ball. I'm catching the ball. I didn't know I'd be catching the balls at the age of six. <laughs> and my hands are killing me. But I was I was just I was just telling somebody this morning that we keep record of how many balls my son throws and how many days. He throws them. Um, and so for the last hundred days, he has thrown just over 17,000 balls in the last hundred days. 
And I've caught a majority of those balls, right? So my hands are like, my whole life has been catching balls. I mean, it's from my brother, from my roommate in college, from now my son. So it's, it's, it's really fun. And it really, it really bonds like my son with his uncle, who he wants to be like, you know, and then I got to be, I get to participate. Even though I was a defensive player, they let the defensive guy participate a little bit. And uh, it's, it's really fun. Ever for a moment, do you say, man, I, come on, son, you couldn't have picked, you couldn't have picked defensive back. That couldn't be your dream. Yeah, we talk, we laugh about that all the time. They're all, because those two, you know, quarterbacks, they're all the same, these quarterbacks. They're, I've been around great quarterbacks my whole life, you know, like Hall of Fame quarterbacks my whole life. They are kind of the same in their sense of humor is they have great sense of humor. They're funny. They're very like self-effacing. But the one thing they all have in common, you guys, is they make fun of defenders. They make, if you play defense, they make fun of you the whole time. And, and so that's what my son and my brother do to me every morning. I'm reminded of being a defensive player. Yeah. And they're like, the odds are already stacked against the defense. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what's he know? He had to play defense. Those guys will, those guys will bark after a parked car. You know, don't <laughs> I think there, there's two things that business owners can take away from the lessons that you just laid out. One is like, okay, what do I do? I have this brother that's going to take me to the NFL, right? Well, you can find that comp fully competitive relationship. And so for me, I, I don't have a business partner. But I have to work double time to find people in my industry that I can have that competitive relationship with, but it's friendly. You know, I don't want an enemy. I don't want someone I'm trying to defeat necessarily. I want someone that I can measure my success to in a positive, healthy way, who's also going to lift me up. And when they're successful, I'm going to be more successful. When I'm successful, he's going to be more successful. I think that's huge for business owners. You don't have to have that brother that's, you know, if you if you didn't luck out in childhood with a brother, like, I don't have a brother. I don't have anyone in this industry who's trying to do what I'm doing that I'm related to, but I can make relationships with people who are going to go in that same direction. I think oh, that's yeah. huge for business owners. A lot of people miss it. I, I You know what? You're exactly right, especially the environment that we live in, right? So we live in this environment that really, really is against competition. You know, like you'll see, you'll, you'll watch the news or whatever. And they're like, they're, they're like, competition is a bad word. Well, listen, you and me would not be here if our ancestors didn't have a competitive nature, right? We would not be here. So um, I agree with you saying you're a hundred percent. And I always like when, when my kids are looking for teams to be on or classes to be in or training sessions to be a part of. I'm always looking for everyone else in that group to be a step, a step and a half, two steps better than my kid, ahead of my kids. Because if I could put my kid into an environment where they're a step behind everybody else, you know what you got then, because human nature will just rise to the occasion. So I think most people don't do that because they want to be the best in the group. They want to be the best in the class. I don't believe in that. I think 
you should totally put yourself like my 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 son would you know when he first started playing like you know little league and basketball he's a little kid we played him two two years below everyone else so if so he, he was if younger were, he was two years younger than everyone yes and so he he'd get his butt kicked he but that's what it takes because if you're the if you're the king at 10 years old guess what you're not going to be the king at 12 it's over somebody's going to push back. There's, there's probably a fine line between getting somebody in a position where they have to step up their game to compete versus getting demoralized. You know, and that's the, that's the, the parents, uh, you know, fine tuning that, you know, you're not going to put a kid in a bad situation, obviously. Uh, but I, you know, I read the book. Uh, have you read Simon Sinek's book, uh, Infinite Game? Uh, oh, no, I haven't read it's, it's really worth reading as a girl, all this stuff are. And he talks about the concept of finding a worthy rival. And, you know, you, you know, you had that with your brother. I didn't have that. I didn't have a brother. But I found in business that if I if I find a worthy rival that, I, that I'm going to compete against, and, and many times these people didn't know I was competing against them, but they became my enemy. Like, I'm going to beat this guy. I'm going to beat the... <laughs> it was super helpful for me just to have something you're chasing, or have something that's making sure is not catching you. You know, it's super helpful. Yeah, I bet you you probably found that in NFL, you know, playing NFL for years. Well, that's what's funny about it, you guys. So I, I think, Sanger, you were talking about like environmentally, like I don't mean like the environment. I mean the environment like your, the office, like your home, like those kind of environments. Um, it, It's funny because... Like if you grew up in my household, you know, you were held to a certain standard and it was just my mom and dad's, they, they, we didn't, you know, back in those days, they didn't, we didn't talk about culture. We didn't talk about that stuff. They just demanded a certain standard for us. And we lived up to that standard, my sisters too. And so that's why, you know, earlier you said, wow, it's kind of crazy how you see these pro athletes come out of the same family. Well, it's because they're growing up in an environment that demands greatness. And when you live in an environment like that, and when you have a, a rival, like you're talking about, Sean, you, that rival demands you play up to the level that they're playing at. And all of a sudden you do. So you guys, it's so funny. So when I'm in high school, right? The environment in the locker room in high at high school sports is at a certain level, right? It's at a certain level. Some guys aren't very good. Some guys are good, but it, it it's the level's not terribly high in high school. Then you go to college and it gets a little bit higher, right? But when you get drafted into the NFL and you walk into the locker room knowing that there's only 45 guys on this team, and they get to choose whoever they want in the whole world. And you're in that room. All, I swear this happened, you guys. The minute I walked into that room, I walked in the locker room. I became better the second I walked in. I became faster. I became more aggressive. I became a pro. And I played up to the level of the pros that were in that locker room with me. Isn't that weird to say? Like it happens that quickly. But you guys have felt that too. 
You walk into somebody's environment, somebody's office that holds a high standard, you could feel it. And then, as us humans are, are apt to do, we adapt to that new uh, demanding situation and we rise. And that's why you'll often find, like in your guys' business, you'll go into an office and you'll see that everybody is playing at a different level. You're like, wow, what is going on in here? And because if you, if you enter that environment and you don't play at that level, you're just not going to feel comfortable there and you're going to leave. Yeah, or you're, you're going to get shoes to leave. Those people will yeah, you, won't, you won't have to fire them. They'll leave. Yeah. 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 I, I used to, oh man, I would have the most uncomfortable conversations with uh, some old business partners of mine that they'd say, Sanger, you're doing this. It's like, I think it's kind of rubbing people the wrong way. You know, like it, you might, it might make so-and-so upset. And I would always say, good. <laughs> that sounds like a positive consequence to me. And we just never saw that from the same angle. I, I have a question about something you said a few months ago. You said you track every single ball that your son throws and every day he throws it. What's the purpose of that? You guys are going to love this because it, <laughs> it wasn't real. That wasn't really my idea. My brother is, you know, he's quarterback. So quarterbacks are a different breed. They're, they're smarter than the rest of the players, you know, which is why they play that position. Um, so my brother uses this term and I don't know if you guys use it, but he's a, he's a, been an investor his whole life since he started making money way back in the eighties. And he uses this measurement called L10, the last 10. So the last 10 days, what has that company done? Like, where's the stock price or what have you? Has it grown? Has it, has it not grown? So we use this terminology, he introduced it to me, called L10. And he said, so Bo, I think we should start measuring L10, last 10 days. And each one of those 10 days, what has Axel, my son, because he has this big dream, what has he done in those last 10 days that we can look at and measure for 100% accuracy? And what has he not done, more importantly? So most people don't do that. And so a day goes by, three days yeah. goes by without mm. you throwing a ball or picking up a ball. And you kind of forget what your, what your dream is in the first place. So we started doing this. And we just have little circles that I draw on a board in our, my gym. And my son sees it every morning. And he just gets the he gets to cross out that circle. There are 10 circles across the page, 10 circles across the board, 10 circles across the board all the way. So you know how like experts always say, well, if you want to get better at something, you better measure it. So that's how we measure how many balls he throws. So we measure the days and the balls. So you know, in the last hundred days, he's thrown 17,167. So now Axel, my son, he can look at that board and we can all put our heads together and go, how many other 16-year-old quarterbacks in the world right now today can say that they have thrown 17,167 balls in the last hundred days? No one except us. 
And it just gives us this edge. Like we did that. We did that as a, as a, as a, and that's how we've done it because look, it, we know um, the, the long game, the long game is for him to get drafted in six, seven years, but he's been working on this plan for many, many years already. So we're just looking at these L10s and just measuring and measuring and measuring. And look, sometimes we miss a day. Sometimes we miss a few days, right? Because of basketball season or track because he plays other sports. So it happens, right? But at least we know when we're off, when we're off course and we know when we're on course. Yeah, that, that so, makes so much and, sense. And this, you guys, think about this. If people did this, right? There are no accidents in my son's life. There's no, there's no, so one day he's going to get drafted, right? And ESPN in six or seven years is going to announce that, oh, the first pick of the whoever, you know, the, you know, Houston Texans is Axel Eason. And everyone's going to go like this, just like you said. Oh, he's lucky. Oh, <laughs> yes. he's got the genes. Oh, he's just He's he's fortunate, and they're going to just devalue all that work. Yeah, I think that's a it's it's a blessing for him to get cast with that because it's only going to motivate him more. You know, it's only going to motivate him more. Um, I I you know I've never had that level of attention on a national stage, but I had people make a few comments to me when I was starting out in the same career that my that my dad spent thirty years in, and uh, in a way. I, I I changed my framework instead of like fighting against it and saying, oh no, it wasn't easier for me. I go, yeah, it was easier for me because I got to learn from him. I didn't get some gift. I didn't, it's not about the handout, whatever. And you know what? Even if I did, what are we going to do? What are we going to change? Is actually going to give away the, the, whatever genetics he inherited? No, that's, he's your son. <laughs> that's what he's got to work with. Just like we've all got our own biology to work with. But I said, yeah, I do have an advantage over everyone because I get to learn from the best every day. And if he hired a coach who was the best in the world at, at, at the best quarterback coach, he's not going to get that same level of instruction that he's getting from y'all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, that's one of the true. things I, I remember, you, you know, you're talking about tracking indicators and, uh, you know, we, we track in our business key performance indicators. And it's so funny. I I had a, a a manager years ago when I first started the business and and he didn't understand this concept and he would focus on going around to our office and telling us to turn in business. Go, you know, turn your business in, turn you know, it's Friday, turn all your money, make some money, make money, make some money. <laughs> whatever. And and I even like you know, being a month in the business, I knew well something's wrong about that. He should be focusing on things at the beginning of the cause and effect funnel. The, the turn in my business is at the effect. He should be tracking key performance indicators. Yeah, if I had the cause in. If I had the business, it would be turn in, yeah, man. Turn it in. <laughs> right. And so, you know, the throwing the football, 7,000 footballs. And so, you know, we were tracking my business. We were tracking, you know, number of meetings that, you know, that we would have. We'd set up a goal. You know, we want to have 2,000 meetings this year. And we would just track that. And if all the other behaviors are lined up, you're going to get the results that you that you want. I, I want to point out something I noticed that you said, and this is all about mindset, because I, I think that's super important when you look at decision-making and setting goals. 
you didn't say about Axel. You didn't say hopefully one day he'll be drafted. Uh, you didn't say if he's lucky he'll be drafted or we're for fortunate. You, and you, you didn't even say if he works hard enough. Yeah, you just said one day he'll be drafted. And I think that is a beautiful expectation of the goal uh, on on setting those goals and deciding to move forward. And that's exactly how you talked about it, you know, five years ago and probably longer than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's. Um, did, did you have that same mindset? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. No, no. You're. The, I know where you're headed with that question. It's. It's awesome. My dad woke us up by telling us we were the best. That's how we woke up every morning. All the kids in his that he had, all six of us. He and he would cuss. My dad. You know, every guy from that generation. My dad was like a cowboy. You know, like a tough dude. And he would cuss when he woke us up. Like he'd rub our backs. He'd say some foul language and he'd tell us we were the best. And. <laughs> we woke up that way and we were like, what is dad talking about? He's embarrassing us in front of, you know, the other little league parents and our teammates because he kept saying we're the best and we weren't, but he just kept saying it and he kept seeing it. And then one day he was so certain that we were the best that I think eventually after about 21, 22 years of hearing it, me and my brother just kind of surrendered to what he saw in us. We go, well, I maybe he's right. I mean, he's half crazy, but maybe he's right. And it turns out, you know, he was right. The certainty in which that, like, the certainty that you see people with, um, I find this really critical. I've had really great coaches in my life, and I've had really bad ones, and we all have, right? Really sucky ones and really just amazing people that saw us clearly the the ones that that were not good coaches they just couldn't see clear the ones that were great coaches they saw us clearly and then they spoke us kind of into existence they saw our greatness and they just kept kept noting it kept talking about it kept seeing it and i think that's that's the new model i think of this term that we've kind of bankrupted called leadership. I think the new leadership, which I hate to even say that word because, you know, back when you and me were growing up, if somebody told you, hey, you're a leader, you know, you got to stand up, you got to lead, that meant something. But today's world, I'm not sure it has the same connotation. I think what do you people think go, the reason is for, the, for that shift. I just think that leadership has has become a, a very narcissistic, meaning, oh, it's all about me, the leader. I get to talk. I used to, I get to point at people. I get to demand of them. And I'm not saying that's not a part of leadership, but the true leaders are more. They're just I I, I view them more as captains. Like you know, like I always think of like the captain of the Titanic. You know. Everyone else gets off the boat and gets on the lifeboats. The captain does not get on a lifeboat. The captain goes down with the ship. And so the greatest captains that I've ever played with or played against are all kind of cut from the same cloth, meaning they're not necessarily the best player. They're not necessarily the superstar player. 
they play a position that does all the dirty work. They carry water for everybody else. They're certain and they 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 make you certain that you are going to win. That's what captaincy is all about. And I don't think our leadership model is there anymore. I think they're more about blaming the team, like pointing fingers at the team instead of going, I got this. Let's go here. I see greatness yeah, did in you. Did you see that interview with um, Jordan Embiid? He was the, the center for the Philadelphia 76ers. He won the MVP this year. Okay, so the 76ers get to the second round of the playoffs and they get blown out. I mean, just destroyed by the Celtics. And Joel Embiid goes to the press conference and he I says, You this. saw this? I did see okay. this. Yeah. So there was another star player on the team, James Harden. He goes out to the press conference and they go, Hey, you know, what could you have done better? Blah, blah, blah. Season's over. You know, what are your thoughts? And he goes, Well, me and James can't win alone. The rest of the team needs to get better. And how do you how do you make that even if you think that even if you think I would, and I would have you thinking it is bad leadership but to say it and then to say it publicly oh that my could God. Not, I mean that, that team will never win a championship as long as he's there and I'm no seeing that prediction on that alone that and that's where you should base it they there's a you guys there's a great book um it's, it's written by a guy named Sam Walker it's called The Captain's Class. And it is about, he studied thousands and thousands of teams, both men's and women's teams. Didn't matter what sport. It all came down to these seven people that led these seven teams. And they're just what you're talking about, Sanger. Exactly. It had nothing to do with them being a great player. It had nothing to do with them being James Harden or Joel Embiid. It had to do with character. And why, why, you know, you know, who's going to win this thing is like, we're talking about the NBA right now, right? It's so predictable who's going to win this thing because of character, not their ability to play. You think, you think, you know, I, I can tell you right now, either Jimmy Butler is going to win this thing or that big dude for Denver, whatever his name 100%. is. Those yeah. guys are straight up character. You know that they're, they're going to win. If you ain't got character, you, you're not winning. Listen to this, you guys, and you'll you'll recognize this in your own business. Tom Brady does not, he ain't the best player. He certainly ain't the best athlete, right? He wins more Super Bowls because he outbehaves everyone in the whole league. Think about that. I just said behaves. He ain't. It's, he didn't throw the ball any better than anyone else. He does, he certainly can't run. He can't jump. He This dude outbehaves everybody, meaning he's at bed. He's in asleep at 7 o'clock in the morning. He has his own scouting team scouting the rest of the league. So he gets intel on everybody. No one knows that. He's wow. doing that. He's getting the intel. He's making up the game plans. This guy eats meticulously, does not drink during the season, like nothing. So who do you think, who do you think is going to go to 10 Super Bowls? Him or the dude who's like on Instagram every night, like drinking and 
you know, doing crazy crap and have it showing no character. I it's remember simple. seeing one of you with a, a player who played like a couple seasons in New England. He goes, man, it's not as good as y'all think. It's not fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't think it was fun. You know that. Oh, oh my God. You know what? He's exactly right. That is, yeah, you cry. You, that, he seems like a nice all-American boy because he's handsome and, you know, got a nice family and all that. This dude is a killer. This guy is out behaving everybody. No one on his team is going to mess up because they're playing to his standard, right? And the, and again, you guys, it goes back to, is is he a, the superstar player? Not really, but yeah. he ends up he ends up being it. They get some results. So I, I want to move on to you know I could I could sit and talk NFL all day. I want to move on from when you left the NFL, you went on and went and wrote a play that was on Broadway. And I wanted to ask you not not why you decided to do that, not what caused you to do that, but how did you decide to do that? Because that is a that's a real change in career. That's not going from the NFL to coaching or commentating oh, on yeah. you know, being a sportscaster. That is a complete different occupation. How did you think about that decision? Yeah. Um, that great question. Wow. No one ever asked me that either. It's really smart. I was playing in the orange bowl. It was against Miami dolphins. It's like 87 ish. So they had a good team. Dan Marino was their quarterback. The Mark brothers, Mark Duper and Mark Clayton were their receivers. Really good team. We're playing in, in Miami. Um, I, I've had six knee surgeries up to this point and I blow my knee for the seventh time. So in the game, and it was so loud in my ears and it was three pops. It was like, pow, pow, pop, like three, like tree limbs breaking. And what hey, happened, what happened just was, to hear. Yeah. And what happened was I broke my ankle and my leg and no, I broke my ankle, my foot and blew my knee. That, that was the three pops. And I was laying at the bottom of this pile with about six dudes on top of me. And I'm lay and I couldn't move because there were so many guys on top of me. And but I could move my head. And I moved my head a little bit to the side like this. And I looked over and my foot was right next to my face. Oh. And I'm like, okay. Uh, that's about it, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> I guess the game's over. <laughs> that, that made the decision for me. Now, it took me two years to put this next move into, you know, into, into the world. Took me a couple of years to kind of figure out where I wanted to go. But it was that moment, um, because this is what I said to myself in that moment. I said, Look, I've trained for 20 years to be the best in the world at this position called safety. And now I, I don't think I can do it anymore. So, and I was like arguing with God it, while I was on a stretcher being wheeled out. I was like having these arguments with God, like, how come? Why? Why would you take that away from me? That's the one thing I do best is these legs can run. And you keep taking them away from me. Why are you doing that? 
And I thought, what I thought, what what could be my next career? And this, I'm still on the floor of the Orange Bowl, you guys. I'm still being wheeled off, and it's all my life's passing before my eyes. And I'm thinking, you know what I do really well? I hurt people really well, because you guys remember the safeties in the '80s. That was a de- that they were killers. Yeah. Right. You can yeah. you can knock anybody out. They didn't call penalties back then. So I said to myself, what I do well is injure people. I like intimidate them. So I figured my next occupation was probably, you know, in the civilian world, that was probably not going to turn out too well for me. So in this, it's frowned on. Yeah. It, right. It's frowned upon. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to end up with an orange jumpsuit on. And so to avoid the orange jumpsuit, I said, you know what? I'm going to learn to express my, this thing, this body. I'm going to learn to express this thing like I do on a football field, but on a, in a place where I can make money and have a living. And that ended up being in New York City. So it took me a couple of years to kind of formulate the whole thing. Then I moved to New York City and just started studying. And I, I, when I was a kid, I made it my declaration. My dream was to be the best safety in the world. Well, I just did the same exact thing 20 years later. I said, I'm going to be the best playwright in the world. I'm going to be the best stage performer in the world. And I gave myself 20 years. That's the kind of window I gave myself. And so I saved all my football money. I went and I just trained. Now, it didn't quite take me 20 years, but it took me several years. But I just, it, the principles remain the same. If you want to be the best safety in the world, it's the same principles as being the best playwright in the world. It's You just have to put it into your new occupation. So that's how that came about. It was, it was due to fear. I was, just, I was afraid that I was going to hurt people and end up, you know, behind bars. And then I learned if I can express myself on a stage, I will get paid. And not only will I get paid, I, I will not, I will, I will not be thrown in jail for it. Right. I'll be, so that's a one, one. Yeah. It's the, right. The not getting thrown in jail part. Yeah. yeah. Both of those things are good. It's a good, yeah, it's a good point. And when, you, when you say that the principles are the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, is, what do you but mean? To, between, you know, getting to the best of the, you know, the NFL, getting to the best of Broadway. What did you find were the common principles that, that sort of rose to the top for you? Yeah, always, always a declaration uh, that I make. And I'm on my fifth one now because I'm, I'm 62 now. Um, and I give myself anywhere from t- 10 to 20 years to, to achieve these, but they're always with the term the best in it. So the best safety, the best playwright, the best stage performer, best author, speaker, whatever it is, husband, whatever it is. Um, the principles are the same. So for me to be the best safety in the world, I go, I just look at my life and I go, what do I need? And I go, oh, I have to out train everybody. I have to show up early. I have to stay late. I have to work on my backpedal. I have to sprint faster and better than anyone else. I knew those principles for sure to be that safety. I knew I had to be strong. So I just started putting those things together like that. So having a declaration, having a declaration, best safety in the world, best playwright in the world, 
Those are my declarations. Now, I like the term declaration, you guys, only because if I use the word goal or, or you know, something like that, I like declaration because a declaration you can be the very next day after you sign the declaration, because that's what our founding fathers did. Like they declared mm -hmm. that we're going to express our freedom in these ways. And you and me express those ways every day. Uh, just right now, we're expressing our freedoms by what they wrote 250 years ago. So I like the term declaration. So that's a principle for sure that I, I, I put in. And I always put a principle in this. I don't, it's just my old schoolness. It's just like, I'm out work, everybody. I'm just going to grind it out. I'm going to stay longer. I'm going to be there earlier. I'm going to stay later. And I'm just not going to stop. I'm not going to quit ever. And eventually I'm going to be the last man standing. And that I, I found that worked for me in the NFL. Like there were so many safeties better than me when we started this journey. And by the time... 1984 rolled around. I was the I was the best at that position, right in the world. So I, I the principles work. The same principles when I was began playwriting and studying um, performing on stage. I another principle, you guys, is I find the person who is the best at that. I I, I find a co-creator, if you will. I go search out the person that has that position already and I study them. And if I can get close to them, I do that. So when I was uh, uh, interested in this whole Broadway thing, the, I went to every person in every one of my classes. So you guys imagine, so I've saved all my football money so I don't have to work. I can just take class after class after class after class. And I could pass up all the people who are ahead of me. And so I needed a mentor. So I went to everybody that I knew. And I said, who's the greatest on stage right now? And this was in 1990. And everybody at that time said, Al Pacino is the greatest on stage, stage performer of our time. And I go, cool, where is he? How can I get him? How yeah. do I get How do I meet this one? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, sure, and sure enough, you start asking those questions. You you start to find it, that mentor. You find that co-creator, the person who's holding your mantle. And you go ask him, what the hell? I want what you've got. Can you help me? And I did that with Al Pacino, and he helped me. He was more than wow. willing to help me because... No one ever approached him with that with that question before. Isn't that crazy? I think he'd be hitting up all the time. I would. I would think a bunch of crazies would be. <laughs> I would. I'm imagining when you tell the story, brother. I'm picturing Al Pacino go. Oh my god, again. Everyone. Yeah. And that's that's what I was expecting too, you guys. I said, I go look, Al. You must get hit up on this all the time, right? And he goes, no, you're the first. I always get hit up because somebody wants a shortcut. They want my agent. They want me to put him in a movie. They want my acting. Uh, he said, you're the first who said, look, I got time. I'm, I'm going to train my ass off. Now, I don't know that he believed me, but uh, 15 years later, he showed up 
in New York City at my play, the, a play that I'm the only guy in. I'm the guy who wrote it in New York, and he's sitting right in the damn fifth row. And he just, well, I mean, that's how it works. So I did, I, I did that with safety. I did that with, with, um, uh, with, with, with playwriting and stage performing. And then you guys, you know, um, same thing. I got, because of the play, I got hired to write screenplays for like movie stars. Right. But I'd never written a screenplay in my life. And I told him, I said, I can't, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire came to me. They said, Hey, Bo, will you write a screenplay for us? I go, I don't write screenplays. I never written one before. And they go, we think you do write screenplays. And I'm like, <laughs> and this is how much we pay our screenwriters. I go, I think I can write one. Um, <laughs> I think I just so, learned. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's how I've done it. So I went, you guys, and I found the great, the best screenwriter in Hollywood. The guy who wrote the Shawshank Redemption, the guy who wrote the Green Mile, the guy who wrote Saving Private Ryan. I went and got him and I said, help me. Help me. I have a dream. Did you find that there were commonalities in the advice that Al Pacino would have given you at the very beginning on how to be a great stage performer and this other person told you on how to be a great screenwriter? Did you find commonalities fundamentally in, in what those two were telling you? Yep. One was, this is going to take a long time. That's first thing. And I think they were saying it to dissuade me. You know what I mean? Like I remember saying to my sisters when I was nine, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be an NFL player. And they laugh in their butts off. Right. And I knew that I wasn't an NFL player yet. I knew I wasn't developed. I knew I didn't have muscle or speed or any of that yet. So I, I, I knew, I understood at a young age that timelines were a thing. Al Pacino, I said, Al, I want to be, I want your mantle. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. He goes, Bo, I can tell you what to do, but that's like 15, 17 years. You're not going to do that. I said, I work well in those timelines. Just <laughs> tell me. And he did, but he's half like, is this guy really going to do this? Same thing with, with the, the writer of Shawshank Redemption, Frank, Frank Darabont. He's like, Bo, do you really want to know what it takes to be the best screenwriter in the world? Do you really want to, do you really want to go through that pain and sweat and anguish? Do you, I go, yeah, I work well like that. I'm used to that. I like that process. And so that principle for sure, every, here's what's so funny. I'm sure you guys see this every day. Everybody's so quick these days to be great. Like I want to be great, but I don't want to spend any time trying to be great. I don't want to yeah. train for, I, I hear people, I've heard people, they come up to me and they go, Bo, uh, we hear that your son, you know, wants to be this quarterback, right? Well, my son has the same dream as yours. So can he come along with you guys when you train? And I said, that would be great. We could use the company. And I say, we'll pick your son up tomorrow at five. And he'll go, great. That's fantastic. Thank you. And then I say 5 a.m. And then he goes, oh, no, 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 no. That's too early. And then sure. I have to <laughs> Then I have to say to the parent, 
wait a second, you just told me your son has a dream and now you're telling me he doesn't have a dream based on the hands of a clock. Is that correct? Is that what you're telling me? So people just are looking for a way out of their dreams. My, 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 the one principle that I hope everybody that, that you know, follows you guys gets is that, you know, dreams sound ethereal or they sound way off. You know, they sound like woo-woo. I don't treat them like that. I start to become my dreams the day that I declare them. I start to be that dream, right? That way I'm being it, I'm, I'm being it, I'm behaving like Tom Brady. He, so Tom Brady was behaving like the best quarterback when he was a kid. No one else recognized him as being a great quarterback except him. He was behaving in a certain way, right? That makes him the best. Well, People go, well, bro, I don't have the time to do this. I'm like, what are you talking about? Where, where are you going? Where are you going so fast? Master this dream that you have. Become this dream that you have so that you can start being it on day one, not day 10 years in the, into the future. So if you look at my son, he's 16 now, but he's been working on this dream, you guys, since he was like six. So... So um, he's been behaving in a certain way for 10 years already, and he's only 16. Well, pro, uh, adults don't even do that because they want things faster. It's ridiculous. You can't become an NFL quarterback like that. You, you can't become a great financial advisor like that. You just can't. And where the heck? Why do you have to go so damn fast? Like, where are you going? Are you going to die? <laughs> <It's a little laughs> like, are you planning on dying in the next 10, 20 years? The, I'm not. The quicker I get there, the quicker I get there, the shorter this hard work, you know, gets, the quicker the hard work gets everyone. Right. Yeah, people 100% are looking for an out. Um, what do you think the key is in your life? Because you've demonstrated the ability to do this over and over and over again. What is the key to sticking with one path yeah yeah i often my kids cry you know um quite often about their their own commitments right their own dreams as they're growing up they cry because they just can't do it and they they throw their hands up and they go dad i can't do it and then they bury their head on the sofa and they cry and i get a little grin on my face because I know that's part of the process. Mm. I did the same thing. There wasn't a day that went by on these years heading toward being the best safety in the world that no one recruited me, you guys. How could this be? If I want to be the best safety in the world, no one, 350 colleges say no to me. How could this be? I got to invite myself to a college that doesn't give scholarships and plays division two football. That's the only way anyone will accept me on their team. That, that part is what I teach my kids because they, I tell them there's only one way out of these dreams. You're going to proactively, you're going to have to quit your own dream that you have. You're going to have to quit your own creation. So you're the one who came up with this dream. And now you're going to have to say to yourself, you know what, dream, 
I quit. They, no one wants to quit on their own dream. And you got to let them quit, but it can only be for an hour. So in our what do you, what do you mean? you, well, there wasn't, there, there wasn't a day that passed you guys that I'd throw up my hands as a teenager in my, you know, uh, uh, 18, 19, 20, where it looked like there was no way I was going to be able to achieve this thing. I've been working on it for so many years and I was having knee surgery after knee surgery and it was hurting me. And, uh, the whole time I would throw up my hands every day. I'd throw up my hands and go, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'd fall on the ground, usually in the fetal position, and just yell at God and er blame everyone for me not being able to fulfill on this dream that I've worked so hard for. And then after that hour, you guys, I would stand up and I would re-engage. Yeah. So you got to give yourself these moments of just losing it. My kids do it all the time. My, when they cry, I know they're on the right path. When, they're, when they say to themselves, I'm not smart enough. She's smarter than me. She's a better cheerleader than me. He's a better quarterback than me. I know that's the right path. I know it. Then they just lose all faith in themselves for an hour, and then they're going to re-engage. But if you don't have that hour to do it, you're going to build up too much stress in your body. You're going to like... Yeah, then, then that court's going to be a bigger yeah. event, not a small event. That's yeah. right. 100%. That's why, you, that's why, guys, if you think about it, a guy like we've been talking about, like Tom Brady a little bit, he is so good at failure. He's so good at throwing an interception for a touchdown and putting his team in jeopardy and then going, you know what? I'm still okay. I'm pissed. I shouldn't have done it. I'm okay. We're still okay. We're still going to win. He's really, and if you think of anybody that's super successful, I don't care what business, they're really good at that failure. Like not taking it too damn serious. Like, you know what? I effed up today, but tomorrow I got another chance. Yeah. I think we have to in, in business to find those new paths because not every idea that I come up with is going to be great. I'm not going to bat a thousand as a leader. I'm not going to bat a thousand as a businessman. But if I'm not, I really needed to hear that today. If I'm not thinking about quitting and throwing it all away every now and then, then I'm not aiming high enough. You know, mm -hmm. if if it's all so easy that even on my worst day, it's ah yes. Yeah, you, you don't have a worthy goal. Yeah, you know, we don't, I don't have a worthy aim. So yeah, yeah. Sure that, that's powerful wisdom. Yeah. yeah, and that's true, you guys. I'm really culturally, I'm really smelling this a lot, and I bet you guys are too. But I'll just articulate it, see how you feel about it. Is for men, for men especially, I think it's a masculine thing. I don't think. As a whole, we're playing a big enough game for us. I think we're, we're, we're getting kind of reduced. We're kind of apologizing for who we are. We're kind of taking a back seat a little bit. We're a little bit worried about being too masculine or too strong or too uh, demanding or too powerful, and we're apologizing for it. Now, we're not necessarily walking around going, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. 
we're just kind of indicating to the world that if we play kind of small or if we play kind of a mediocre game, it's a lot safer than playing the ultimate game. And I have, I, I got to tell you, in the last several months, meeting with guys and being in, with groups and talking to them, even young guys like my son's age, they're trying to reduce their, their, their greatness by playing a mediocre game. And that, I think, is going to destroy the whole, the whole masculinity. Men, I mean, it's, a, it's a big threat to our, to our culture. Uh, it's a huge threat to our culture. Because that's how we got to where we are, is people thinking um, great ideas and putting those great ideas in, into motion. People who dared to have a big, bold plan, and they went after it. And we're the descendants of those people, either um, ethnically or, or in idea, right? Whether you, if you immigrated to this country, you are a descendant of that American idea to explore, to pioneer, to... I have, I have heard recently, you know, I, I was just, this just happened yesterday, in fact. Uh, I was talking with somebody and, and they were talking about uh, international cultures and they were saying, you know, you know, in the U.S. and, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're the same as everybody else. We're, I'm not saying we're better than, you know, other countries. I said, hold on, why not? Why, <laughs> why are you afraid to say that our culture is better? Our, uh, there has to be a better culture. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not... Some, someone's someone's got to be there. I've got to have the best ideas. I think they're here. Why are you afraid to say that? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I think there's been a a, a movement, I agree with you, Buck, that has moved away from being able to take a stand saying, you know, we're going to be the best. We're going to do this. Uh, let's dominate it. Uh, but, yeah, I, it's great, Wilson, Buck. Let us know where people can find uh, your work and uh, the, the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you guys can always join me like, Sanger did, you know, and, and uh, you could look up a personal story power event, which is an event I have. But you know what? Uh, I, I'd like everyone, if you notice how I speak and how all three of us have spoken on this podcast, it's all about story. Like Sanger will tell a story. I'll tell a story. Uh, Sean will add in a story and it's all giving us context. But, you know, personal story what it really does for us is it gives us trust. Like when you're able to share yourself, you start to trust one another again, like former generations had to do. And our trust is at its lowest level. So I would love to give you guys a free um, a guide so that the listeners can, can go and, and capture their story. The thing that I think is the key to the kingdom or these the dreams that I have is the story that I tell myself and then follow. I become the story and then follow that story, whether it's in safety, whether it's playwright, whether it's a writer, whether it's a dad. It's all story if you notice. And so if you guys don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll pass along a, a story guide that they can all begin to capture this story. And all you have to do is just text personal story. So text the... Uh, text the word personal story, two words, to 323-310-5504. And I'd love for you to start to capture your personal story because I have found that that is the most powerful thing that I've got. You know, as soon as Pacino said, no, no, Bo, you've got to tell your story because if you don't, you're going to hurt yourself or hurt other people because what you've been trained to be 
is kind of an assassin. You know, kind of somebody who hurts you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of your yeah, job. Yeah. And so he goes, but if you can articulate it in front of people, then you can play the ultimate game. Then you can have trust and connection. Then you can lead. And so it's been really valuable to me. So I'd love for everybody to, you know, be able to capture theirs. Perfect. Thanks for doing that. Um, yeah. I second it. The value that I got, like I said at the beginning, it's amazing. So if you're interested, even slightly follow up with what Bo's offering. Thanks again so much, Bo. Appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot, Bo. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. My takeaway from him, you know, in terms of looking at decision-making frameworks, the thing that I picked up was what he said near the end of our discussion around declarations as opposed to goals. I have gone through in my own life and said, you know, gone from a place where, oh, I'd like to hire, you know, hike the PCT. Maybe one day I'll hike the PCT. Yeah, that'd be so cool to hike the PCT. And it wasn't until I said, I'm doing this. I'm going to hike on the PCT that it became real and there was a different energy that I felt when I declared it Mm. and it became a real goal. So that part of decision-making, I think that declaration has to be part of your decision-making process. My biggest takeaway was his story about his brother's advice for tracking progress, the L10 method uh, and measuring the last 10 days of progress of an objective measurement, right? So he tracks his son's uh, football progress by saying, how many balls you throw today? And then let's look over the last 10 days to identify trend lines. That's genius. It's so simple. We could try to get really nerdy and get into, well, how many, what's his percentage of accurate throws on, and you know, how did it get really into like something that's harder to measure? If you're throwing more balls, you're going to get better at being a quarterback. If you're practicing there, you're going to get better. So let's do that. And that could be applied to our our businesses very straightforwardly. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.